0: Hello and welcome to Plain Talking. In this episode, we explore the future of Christianity in the UK ahead of the latest census findings. And brother David Jardine offers us another powerful spiritual reflection drawn from his own experiences of God and life. But we start with the sad news of the death of a true Christian pioneer. Anne Vanderbilt, better known as Brother Andrew, died last month surrounded by his family. Nicknamed God's Smuggler, Brother Andrew's passion for supporting persecuted Christians spawned the global charity Open Doors that is helping millions of persecuted Christians worldwide. The book of his adventures, God's Smuggler, sold over 10 million copies in 35 languages remaining in print for more than forty years. I asked Henrietta Blythe, CEO of Open Doors, to tell us more about Brother Andrew. So I'm delighted now to be joined by Henrietta Blythe, who's the Chief Executive Officer of Open Doors. Welcome, Henrietta. Thank you. Lovely to be with you. And uh, as I said, we were we're really, you know, sorry to use a long life. He was into his nineties, Brother Andrew, when he when he died, but what a what a long and fruitful life this man has lived. And and so I wonder, could you give us a potted biography of Brother Andrew?
1: So uh, Brother Andrew was 94 when he died. He became a Christian when he was in hospital, having been injured while he was a soldier in the Dutch Army fighting in the Dutch East Indies. And I think he had some pretty grim experiences in the army, I think, while he was in hospital. His mum had put a little Bible in the bottom of his kit bag, and because he had nothing better to do, he read it. And I think he became a Christian when he came home. He was then studying theology. He was in Glasgow at a seminary when he felt really evicted by the Lord, by, by a verse in the book of Revelation, in the Bible, Revelation 3, which says, wake up and strengthen what remains, and is about to die. And he felt really convinced that God was calling him to go and strengthen the churches behind the then Iron Curtain in communist Europe. This would have been the late 1950s. Um, so he was going on a mission to Poland. He was going as a visit to Poland. He decided to take some Bibles with him. And both the time, he started to smuggle more and more Bibles into communist Europe. Amazing stories of him driving his little blue Volkswagen Beetle, stuffed with Bibles towards a border post, and he would pray as he approached, Lord, we know that you can make blind eyes see. Please make seeing eyes blind. And getting just some amazing stories about how, even when there were Bibles on the back seat of the car, the guards did not see them. Or as he approached the border post, something would happen that would distract the guards and he'd get through no problem. I mean, amazing stories of sort of daring do. And he then wrote his book, God Smuggler, about his adventures and what the Lord had done through him. He'd been working with a group of friends. I'm amazed at how many people I meet whose parents knew Brother Andrew and they used to wonder why when they went on holiday as children, they'd go off in a camper van and then meet some stranger in the forest. And they didn't know why they were doing it. Then years later, they discovered they'd actually been smuggling bundles. After he wrote God's Smuggler, it became a bestseller. And after that, he was well known in communist Europe. He couldn't go back to communist Europe himself. So she turned his attention to um, the Islamic world. She expanded the work into the Middle East. Now, Open Doors, as we know, works in some 60 countries. We reach millions of persecuted Christians. We support them with discipleship training. We still smuggle Bibles, can't tell you how. And um, we train leaders for the church. We provide trauma counseling. We provide um, socioeconomic opportunities for people who've lost their jobs, having become Christians, things like this. And we also raise awareness by doing research into the 50 most dangerous countries for Christians, which, as you know, is called the World List.
0: Wow. What an amazing life, Henrietta. I mean, I'm, I'm also conscious that, you know, he, I don't know how many books he published. I've got a, I've got a, list. Well, I've got a list of the books. It says 17 books. Um, and many of these were, in, were bestsellers in their own right. So I mean, when, you, when you look at the, the data, just as a writer, as a publisher, as a missionary, as a campaigner, what is his legacy in Open Doors? Um, and how do you see that growing in, in years to come?
1: Well, he's passionately was for people to come to know Jesus. That that was his driving passion. And the reason he wanted to strengthen the church in these countries was so that God's people could continue to be salt and light in their communities. And that is still our vision. We wanted to make Jesus known. We wanted people to continue to witness to Jesus and be salt and light no matter what they face. One of the things that is extraordinary about Brother Andrew is he was a real person of faith. So his desire was to follow the Lord's leading above all else. He called it the step of yes, to just do what he felt the Lord was calling him to do. He also really understood the power of prayer. So as I've said, he used to pray as he approached the border crossing. But more than that, he said, prayer is the real battle. And in his later years, he used to pray with a newspaper and a Bible. And he would spend hours. He talked about how important it is that we understand what's going on in the world, that we pray intelligently, that we use the Bible to pray. But he was very clear that prayer makes all the difference and that the Lord is living, active, actively engaged, and prayer is what enables the Lord to move. Um, so his legacy is an extraordinary one. We've had some very touching stories from supporters about how they've been influenced by Brother Andrew and his lies and by God's smuggler. I think for me, since I became CEO of Oakland Doors in the UK four years ago, my faith has just grown exponentially. I read the Bible with fresh eyes so much. You know, Acts, the book of Acts, is really the story of the persecuted church. I never understood that before I got involved at Open Doors. I understand the power of prayer so much more. And it's extraordinary when we go and visit our persecuted brothers and sisters. It's extraordinary to pray with them, to see their faith in action, to see their courage and go into situations where they know they may face imprisonment or death and their desire is still to share Jesus and witness to him. It's completely awe-inspiring, to be honest. And I think that's a big part of Brother Andrew's legacy. What will
0: Christianity in the UK look like in the coming years? with the imminent publication of the 2021 census findings, I asked Michael Wakelin from the Religion Media Centre to help us navigate the likely spiritual map of the UK. I'm joined now by Michael Wakelin, Executive Chairman of the Religion Media Centre and also Executive Producer of BBC Radio's Pause for Thought. The Religion Media Centre is an independent, impartial body helping journalists and other media professionals to understand and cover religion. Their recent annual lecture on the future of religion in the UK gives a fascinating insight into the shifting spiritual landscape of these islands. The lecture was given by Professor Linda Woodhead, and she began by imagining the likely findings of the soon-to-be-published census, the 2021 census. So welcome, Michael. Thank you for having me on. Well, Michael, I wonder if that's a good place to start. Uh, the, the, the census is going to come out fairly shortly. Professor Woodhead makes some assumptions about what this census is likely to say. Could you tell us what,
2: what she said and on your, on your views, if you like? Well, the thing that Linda's very good at is the kind of the sociology um, of, of religion and the, the way She's been reading the runes and reading the stats for a a number of years now, and there is very clearly a steady and irreversible, it seems, decline in membership of established religions, particularly Christianity. And although we don't know the results of the census, we can be fairly sure that there is going to be a considerable rise in the number of people who are describing themselves as non-affiliated the nones, if you like, and there's going to be a decline in those people who declare themselves, particularly Christians. There is evidence that Islam will be growing in the census. I think Linda mentioned up to perhaps 8% of the country and um, which will be considerable growth since the last census. So we can be fairly sure these things are going to happen. What is interesting is what underlies those headlines though, because although the nones could be above even 50%, the. Fact is that uh, recent research just come out in the last couple of days, actually, by Theos, has shown that the people who declare themselves nons aren't necessarily non-religious. They're just not affiliated. So they'll pray, they'll have spiritual lives. I think over half of them believe in God, so the um, the surveys show. So, I mean, if, if you're going to find the census depressing, then we, we probably will be a bit depressed by the number of Christians there are. But let's not be too gloomy about the overall state of the religiosity of the nation, the fact it has been changing for decades, and now what we have is a, a very rich mosaic of religious expression rather than a kind of monochrome I'm C of E as we might have had, you know, 30, 40 years ago. So now there's a lot of different expressions of it, and I think that's fine and healthy. Believe in a personal God has halved in the last 30 or 40 years, but belief in angels and the afterlife has doubled. So... It's it's just different ways of expressing the faith. If you are going to be concerned about falling numbers of Christians, then it it, it will be depressing. But you know, I think as Linda says elsewhere, the church has for many years been building barriers, not bridges. So we've we've only got ourselves to blame, and and yet you know the fiery cloudy pillar, the kingdom of God is completely fine, as the great hymn, um, Onward Christian Soldiers," says gates of hell shall never against the church prevail. We have Christ's own promise, and that cannot fail. How the church manifests itself, how the kingdom starts to manifest itself is is what's going to be very interesting over the next 30 or 40 years. I mean, I was fascinated when when I read the report on this,
0: that the sense of a considerable decline in kind of organized, formal Christian religion, as you say, other religions seem to be holding their own and doing, and doing better. But Christianity as a kind of organized thing seems to be uh, suffering a huge decline and yet a massive increase in what you might call a spirituality. So I'm wondering, how do we best engage with a, a fellow citizens who may be highly suspicious of our Christian rituals and practices, but nevertheless are interested in magic or the afterlife or ancestry, whatever it might be?
2: One of our trustees came up to me afterwards. I mean, the religion media center is not a religious body. We do not promote religion. We don't say it's good or bad. We simply say it matters. However, of course, uh, not all of us, but a few of us on the trustees board are Christians. And one of them came up to me afterwards, a bit depressed, and he said, We've got to start preaching Jesus. I think if we did that and we got the right Jesus across, then I think we'd be in a very different place because too often we've been following this blonde haired, Jesus, my mate Jesus, let's go down the pub Jesus type, easygoing going person. He wasn't that at all. For a start, he wasn't easy going. I think he'd been an extremely uncomfortable companion, especially for someone privileged and he got on very well with people whose lives were in a mess mainly. But the other thing that I think is just very ironic and it's, it's our fault as, as Christians that we've let this happen, but Jesus would be so attractive to Gen Z and Generation X, where we call them now, um, because he was, he was anti-establishment, he was uh, speaking truth to power, he hated hypocrisy, when he would never be cool, because Jesus would not be cool, because he wouldn't be bothered to be cool, but he would be dynamic and interesting and engaging. And young people would find him extraordinarily attractive as someone to follow and get excited about. But it's the church, with all its you know, trappings and its language and its ceremonies that just don't meet the modern world, that has allowed the real Jesus to get hidden. And obviously, the child abuse scandals and all that dreadful stuff is, is not helped, and the church has been shown to be you know terribly hypocritical. I think the same sex marriage stuff is also not helpful. I'm, I don't, you don't need to know where I stand on that, but I I recognize it's an issue for people. However, in the Bible, there are six verses about homosexuality. There are 2,800 about justice. What do we spend our time worrying about? I try, I'm trying to organize a, a conference on the environment for a big Muslim organization at the moment, actually. And they've said to me, "Oh, do, do try and get some bishops. And the date it was originally going to be on, it had to be postponed in the end, but, um, I tried to get some bishops and they were all away in Oxford for a week discussing human sexuality. Well, they could have been in my conference talking about the climate crisis. What's more important. I just think, come on, move on. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. I'm not saying it's not important to people. Six verses versus 2,800. Let's, let's focus on what really matters. And then the world and young people. Might start to get excited about us because we're suddenly seem to be a, a serious squad doing something serious. Well, I'm
0: about to ask you, Michael, given, given that analysis of, of where the churches are at the moment, and particularly with this report and the census, the census is coming out, is it too late? Is the tide finally running out on organized Christianity?
2: And, you know, we should make way for some other expression. Well, I think um, for a start, it's God's kingdom, not ours. And I think God is quite capable of looking after his own kingdom. It was Gandhi who said Christianity is a wonderful religion if it wasn't for its followers. I think we've got things wrong, badly wrong. And that has not been helpful at all. I'm not worried about the teacher of the kingdom because gates of hell shall not prevail. Is it too late? I think what we need to be doing now is really being uh, eyes open and looking for where the fiery cloudy pillar is leading us. Look to where the cross is pointing us. We may find it's in a very different place to what we might imagine. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in uh, one of his books, Towards the End of His Life, how he's thinking that we should be looking towards this new time where there'll be a new language maybe non-religious language that we need to get hold of and start to adopt that. It'll be scary. It'll be, how does he describe it, you know, sort of dangerous, but that's what we need to be looking for. The On the other side of this, of course, there was the, the massive outpouring of spirituality and sort of folksy religion, if you like, with the Queen's funeral, you know, clearly There is something about the trappings of the church that is attractive and we don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater for a start, all the wonderful music and the, the architecture and, you know, let us hold on to the things that are valuable to help people express their faith, but let's let go of the things that don't matter much and talk about the things that really do matter. For me, Christianity is good news to the poor. If it isn't good news to the poor, what are we doing? Release to the captives freedom from oppression. If we focus on those things totally and not the minutiae of certain bits of the Bible, then I think we would be in a much better place with society. And
0: finally, we find Brother David Jardine reminiscing on his long and
3: varied ministry. As I look back over the 55 years since I was ordained in 1967... I think I can safely say that I've had a very varied ministry. I started by serving for six years in the Church of Ireland, and then I felt called to go to England, to the lovely county of Dorset, to join a religious community in the Church of England, the Society of St. Francis. They introduced me to a whole variety of ministries, which were new to me, working with wayfarers, men who just traveled around from place to place, Spending three months at a school which the society ran for maladjusted children. Hitchhiking everywhere that I had to go. Wearing the brown robes. A whole variety of ministries. But for me the most exciting of all was going down to Portland, to Portland Borstal on the south coast. Spending three or four days at a time there. Living with the boys. Sleeping in a cell. Sharing their recreation time. Working with them during the day and speaking at the service of the chapel on Sunday. I really enjoyed the work. So when the society sent me back to Belfast a couple of years later, I asked the bishop if he could allow me to work as a prison chaplain. After a few months, he found me a job working in Crumden Road Prison. The troubles were going strong by that time. The jail was crowded. Before the troubles began in 1969, Northern Ireland was regarded as a relatively low-abiding place compared to the rest of the UK. There were only 600 people in prison. But by 1977, only eight years later, that figure had gone up to 3,000. It was a sad thing to see so many young men who would never have seen the inside of a prison if they had not been born into a community in conflict, coming in to do sometimes very long sentences. I worked for 10 years in Crumland Road Prison. It was an exciting time and challenging as well, dealing with all the main activists in the Troubles. My work was really threefold, visiting men in their cells. That probably took up 80% of my time, running fellowship groups in every wing of the prison for men who wanted to go in their faith and taking the Sunday service in the chapel. Services were always well-attended, so every week you had an opportunity to share the faith with a large group of men. Out of all the services that I conducted on Crumlin Road, there is one that stands out. In 1980, I asked the Reverend Cecil Kerr from the Christian Renewal Centre in County Down to come in and take a special Sunday afternoon service. The chapel was packed. The men weren't going to miss the chance to get out of their cells. For a second time in one day. But the service didn't go as planned. Some of the people who spoke that day had never spoken in public before. The singers came from various parts of Northern Ireland and had not been able to get together to rehearse. The only part of the service that really went well was Cecil Kierr's preaching, which as usual was of a very high standard. But in spite of these shortcomings, I can honestly say that that was the most powerful service I took part in during my ten years in prison ministry. Cecil himself told us the reason. He said that while we were meeting in Crumlin Road, the members of his community were gathered at that very time to pray for us, and their many prayer partners throughout the world had also been alerted to pray. And I just said, "Wow." Our conduct of the service was far from perfect but people prayed in very good numbers in the background and the Lord transformed the service into something very powerful. There were men present that day who 42 years later are still involved in Christian work. When I saw the results of prayer I started to organize people to pray for our prison ministry and wherever I went after that I organized people always to pray in the background. The results were often dramatic. And that gave me the confidence to pray consistently for issues in my own life, large or small. Indeed, there have been one or two challenging times in life when it was only taking it to the Lord in prayer that kept my head above water. But through those struggles, I eventually came to see that no situation is beyond transformation when we can bring it before the Lord in prayer. My aim each day is to pray about everything as I move about, even when I am in situations. Because of a wandering mind, I don't always manage that as well as I would like. We cannot always guarantee exactly how the Lord will answer But what I can say in a general way is that things always go better, sometimes dramatically better, when I'm praying about them.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Plain Talking, and look out for the next one coming soon. If you've enjoyed it, it would be so helpful if you could leave a review on the site where you downloaded this podcast. It helps to make us more visible and find new listeners. Plain Talking is sponsored by the Plain Truth magazine, a magazine of understanding. To find out more, please visit plain-truth.org.uk. Thanks for listening and God bless.